Welcome everybody to West Village on the Lake, week two. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at West Village. Uh, excited to be with you this morning, this evening, this afternoon, whenever you're tuning in. Uh, it's a beautiful afternoon here for us on the lake. And uh, we're going to dive back into Matthew today. So last week, if you didn't get a chance to check it out, uh, Chris delivered a powerful message um, at the end of chapter 16 of Jesus telling his disciples that he needed to die and that those who follow him will also need to die and take up their cross. And it was hard. It was dire. Uh, it, it was, the disciples had a hard time hearing it. They didn't want Jesus to die. They didn't want uh, their rabbi, their teacher to have that death. And they didn't want to have that same call on their own life. Uh, and it's in light of that dire message today uh, that we're going to look at the next section in Matthew. And we're going to head up a mountain for an experience that the disciples won't forget and hopefully that we won't forget. Uh, so today we're going to look at the transfiguration of Jesus. And the big idea today is that we can't let our narrow-mindedness distract us from the glory and mission of Jesus. I'll say it again. We can't let our narrow-mindedness distract us from the glory and mission of Jesus. Let's pray, then we'll dive in. Jesus, thank you that you know us so well, uh, that you planned your Bible, your word, your revelation to us in such a perfect way that we can hear the hard messages and they're balanced out with these amazing experiences of who you are. And so I pray as we dive into this text today, that spirit, you will use your word um, to inspire us, to convict us, to amaze us as we sit at home on our couches or we gather with our community groups. Uh, we know that you are there and that you make your word active and alive and powerful. Um, so bless it as we dive into it today. So you got your Bibles, got your phones, got your app. Open up with me to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at 17, 1 to 13 today. I'm going to read the whole chunk uh, and then we can take it apart piece by piece as we go. So this, this section is called the Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up and they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them. About John the Baptist. So today I want to look at this passage through two different lenses. 
the first is, what does this tell us about Jesus? And then later on, we're going to ask the question, what does this tell us about ourselves? So let's dive into that first question. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? Who he is? Reveal to us about him. Right at the beginning, we see this is six days later. Uh, and, and like I said before, this is directly connected to Jesus' teaching about death at the end of chapter 16. Matthew wants us to connect these verses. He wants us to view them in light of each other. That's why those six days are there as a bridge between them. And after that hard message of the cross, the disciples and us need to be reminded that Jesus is a glorious king. We have just been exposed to the harsh reality that Jesus is heading towards his death, but God in his grace gives us this amazing experience to balance that out. So the disciples, they head up a mountain. Like a lot of profound moments in the life of Jesus, and throughout the whole Bible, we find ourselves up on a mountain. And why is this important? Throughout the Old Testament, God met with key people to deliver important messages on mountaintops. Those were typically messages of what God's kingdom would look like and how he was going to bring salvation and restoration about. How God was going to save his people was talked about often on mountaintops. Ultimately, all those previous mountain messages pointed to Jesus. And for this reason, we regularly find ourselves reminded of God's promises of salvation. And Jesus regularly finds himself atop mountains because he is the fulfillment of those promises. And the biblical authors want to draw us back to that and remind us again and again and again uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Bible and the Old Testament had looked forward to. But this mountain experience becomes so much more than a sermon like we've seen Jesus do in the past on mountains. Uh, If you look at verse 2, I'll read it for us. It says, There he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became, became as white as the light. Here we have this amazing glimpse of Jesus in all his glory. He's transfigured. He's transformed. And everything is revealed. His face shines. His clothes become white. There's a brilliance here uh, that you can all picture in your head, right, of those pictures of Jesus shining. And we don't get them often in Scripture, but this is it. The veil's been torn back a little bit. We get exposed to Jesus. And we need to remember that when Jesus left heaven to be born as a child, he actually humbled himself and he limited his power and his glory. He became a human in likeness. He looked like me or you or a short Jewish guy from 2,000 years ago. Uh, So we have that picture of Jesus in our head, right? But instead here we find this awesome fully brilliant revelation of Jesus and his glory. And as I got to chew on this again this week, just this idea of soaking this in, pausing in this moment, resting in this picture of Jesus. We rarely get to see him as fully God and fully man revealed all at once in the scriptures. It's always there. That truth doesn't change. But in the transfiguration, we get this special moment on the mountain. For those of you that are familiar with the story of God, this scene will actually remind you of Moses. When his face shone after he came down from God's presence when he received the law and the Ten Commandments. And it does have some of those similarities. But there's a major difference here. 
I came across this quote this week. I'll read it for us. It says, Moses' face shone because it reflected something of God's glory. But as for Jesus, he himself was transfigured. You know, Moses was just a man, but Jesus is God. Moses only reflected the glory that radiates from Jesus. This comes from inside of Jesus. Moses was just a reflection. As Chris preached a couple weeks ago, uh, there's still a lot of people that doubt that Jesus is fully God. Uh, It's a common critique that the Bible never says that. Uh, We hear that often. But we get this striking declaration here that Jesus is fully God. As he is transfigured and his Godhood fully shines through, the curtains are pulled back. And this is a glimpse. We can't forget that. We can't let these moments pass by lightly. We need to be awed by them, struck by them, revel in them, and soak them up, and remember them. As we continue on into verse 3, this message is reinforced. Verse 3, it says, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. It's kind of random. Two famous figures from the Old Testament just appear, pop out of nowhere. Um having a casual chat with Jesus on the mountain. And there's obviously something deeper going on here. Uh, Without going deep into the stories of Moses and Elijah, we can say that they just had this deep, profound impact on the Jewish understanding of what God's kingdom would look like, of what salvation would look like, of how God was working in the world. They impacted the Old Testament scriptures in major, major ways. Uh, And they also stand in this long line of prominent biblical servants, from prophets and servants all throughout the Old Testament, who look forward to the coming Messiah. They prophesy, they preach, they teach. On one day, God is going to send the Messiah to save his people and the world. And so their appearance here serves a twofold purpose. One, it affirms that Jesus is going to have a similar experience to them, that he stands in the same tradition and history of them, of servants that came and preached and suffered for their message. Um, And second, they affirmed the transcendent nature of Jesus. They never had transfiguration moments like this where their faces shone and they were transformed. So their appearing here affirms that Jesus is actually the one that's bigger, that's greater than them, that's transcendent from them, and who has come to complete the work of God's mission that Moses and Elijah alluded to, prophesied, and said was coming. He's the suffering servant that the Old Testament promised would bring salvation to Israel. He's the fulfillment of God's plan. And so if this transfiguration and then these appearance of these like foundations of the Jewish faith, if that wasn't enough to confirm the identity and mission of Jesus, we get an even clearer picture in verse 5. Continue reading on there. While he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we all just want to hear that from our dads. Such a beautiful picture of an unbroken relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, It's a sweet, sweet moment. 
because no human had ever lived that perfect life, free from sin. And it wasn't until God put on flesh and came down to earth and did it himself that those words could be said. Because in Jesus, human life is lived to perfection. Uh, and because Jesus lived that perfect life and didn't wasn't tarnished and marred by sin, the Father can say to him, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's an amazing message. And I'll let you in on a little secret. We can experience the same thing. As I read this passage again and again this week, I couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the fact that God the Father looks at me the same way now. Because of the life and death of Jesus, I can be adopted into his family. Because of Jesus, my old identities have been put to death. I get a new identity given by him that's pure and whole and right. Because of Jesus, the Father looks at me and sees the perfect life of Jesus. He can look at me and say, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Not because of anything I did, despite everything I did, but because of what Jesus did. And it's amazing. And this invitation is open to us every single day. Die to your old self acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and be adopted into his family. It's the hardest but most fulfilling thing you can do with your life. And if you choose this life, God has a command for you. At the end of verse 5, we see it there. It says, listen to him. Listen to him. Um, you know, you think we'd all get this point by now, but us, just like the disciples, we need a good reminder from God from time to time. Good old, listen to him. And so why? Because Jesus knows the plan. He knows how life was designed. He knows our purposes. And he knows what human flourishing and satisfaction looks like. All those things come to fruition in the way he lives his life, and what he teaches, in his word, and ultimately the cross. So the command to listen to him is the way that we follow, the way that we too start to experience human flourishing and satisfaction in life instead of death and despair. And if you're anything like me, you know or you think you know what's best for yourself, right? So this command of listen to him is actually harder than you think, harder than you know. Because we all think we have life figured out. You know, we've read that book with the 10 steps to a happy life. If you listen to that podcast about forming good habits uh, and now you have life all figured out or you listen to some or watch some YouTube video about positive thinking and now you can get over any difficulty in life, right? You can't. We're dumb. We're all dumb. I'm dumb. You're dumb. Nathan's dumb. We're all dumb, okay? We can't figure these things out. We're broken. Our judgment is clouded by selfishness and pain and all the paths that we choose eventually lead to disappointment and death. We can't get there. We can't figure it out. So we must listen to him. We must listen to Jesus. He's the only path that leads to life as intended. He's the one that lays it out. He's the one that designed it. He's the one that made us. He knows what's best for us. He knows how our hearts work, how our minds work. He knows the junk we want to turn to, and he knows what's best for us. He's the parent that makes us eat our vegetables it ends up being what's best for us. 
This path is hard, though. So it's a path of dying to yourself, taking up your cross and following him, listening to him and nothing else. So how do we do this? How do we listen to him? What does that look like? And we could preach a whole sermon on this, but I'll give you three simple things. Probably said these three simple things in dozens of sermons, but I'll say it again. How do we listen? We read our Bible. You know, this is called God's word. It's how he speaks to us. It's how he's revealed to himself to us, to his people, to his church. Get into it. Take a class. Read a book. Ask your CG leader. Listen to sermons on how we unpack and teach on this. Learn this word. Make it part of who you are, how you live, how you breathe. May it invade your thoughts often. Pray. Converse with him. How do you listen to him? You have a conversation. Jesus deeply desires for his people to talk to him, to speak to him, to pray to him. We see it all throughout scripture. It's not that he doesn't know what's going on for us. He just loves this action of dependence and trust in him uh, as we pray and come to him that way. So read your Bible, pray. Finally, be part of the church. Live your life surrounded by God's people. They are his body. You get to know him. You get to learn how to listen to him. You hear his words through other members of the church family, through a CG, through a DNA group, whatever it is. Get connected. Lean in. Don't be the one that has to be pursued and chased down. Instead, pursue the church. Pursue God's people. Get to know them. Be known by them. Let them speak Jesus' words to you so that you can listen to him, so that you can obey him, and so that you can be changed by him. Let's keep reading on. 17, 6 through 8. So God speaks, and then, When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This is an understandably terrifying experience for the disciples. Nobody likes to be told to listen to people. That's terrifying. I tell my kids to listen, they run away screaming and slam the door. Um, but for the disciples, it's a whole other level. They grew up in a culture where only the most holy priest once a year was allowed to enter the presence of God. They spent so much time purifying and all these rituals just to get ready for that one day a year where they could go in and enter what's called the Holy of Holies in the temple, the very center where God's presence dwelt. Like they took it so seriously that when the priest went in, they tied a rope around his leg in case he wasn't pure enough and he died and they had to pull him out because nobody would go in there because then they would die. Like it was a big deal. God's holiness cannot stand unholiness, cannot stand the tarnished nature of the human heart. And it just purifies it. It puts it to death because God's nature is so holy. So he has to hold that back. Uh, And so this is what had shaped the disciples idea of God's presence. This is why they are afraid when the cloud comes down and the voice speaks. They drop to the ground. They're terrified. They're paralyzed with fear. They expect to die right now. But Jesus is so amazing in this moment, right? His voice doesn't get louder. It doesn't get more intense. He comes to them. He a hand on them. He comforts them. He says, do not be afraid. It's just this amazing picture of a humble king. And the disciples look up and everything's gone. Moses is gone. Elijah's gone. Clouds are gone. The voices are gone. 
And all that's left is Jesus. His face no longer shines. And that in itself is a gift. The disciples get left with all they really need. Jesus. They get comforted by the God of the universe. It's just such an amazing picture, right? He's fully humbled himself again so that he can interact with his people in their state of terror and fear. He's put the cover back on his godness for a little while so that the disciples can know him better. It just shows that he knows us so much better than we could ever ask and imagine, right? He knows what's going on in our hearts. And he offers us comfort. He accepts us in our weakness and offers us a way forward. Hand out, don't be afraid. So what does this passage tell us about Jesus? That's the question we asked at the beginning. It says he is fully God. And this passage just offered us a glimpse of him in all his glory. And it's amazing. It says he is the fulfillment of everything God promised in the Old Testament. He is the means by which God will save the world. Finally, shows us he is this compassionate servant king who loves his people and will die for them. It's a pretty amazing picture of Jesus. You know, I'm kind of tempted to stop right now. Just let us revel in that. We can sing, we can worship, be out here on the lake, singing praises to Jesus. But I want to answer that second question. What does this passage tell us about us? What does this passage show us about the disciples and therefore us? So let's look through that lens. We'll go back to verse 4. We'll rewind a little bit here. So right after Jesus is transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear, then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's good for us to be here, Peter said. We humans, we love extraordinary experiences, right? Go to Disneyland because everything's cranked up to 11 and perfect and these grand experiences or concerts or whatever it is, that perfect Thanksgiving dinner feast. We revel in these amazing experiences, these mountaintop experiences, as we see on a mountain here. We, you know, we want to capture them in a bottle or camp in that moment. Peter wants to set up tents, right? He wants to stay there wants to just soak it up and revel in it, and it's going to be amazing. And I'm sure you can think of experiences in your own life. You know, that great vacation. For me, it's always Christmas morning as a child. It's kind of got this hazy, contented blur over it, right? It was awesome. I know it was awesome, but I'll never recreate it because it was a mountaintop experience. Or maybe on the, it's that mission trip you took as a teenager or a young adult. It's just this amazing experience of serving God and meeting with him. Or that prayer retreat you went on where in the midst of silence and digging into God's word, you really heard from the Spirit. You were profoundly impacted and changed. And these, these great moments of joy and spiritual clarity come in our lives, and they're awesome. There's nothing wrong with them. They should be cherished. We should be thankful for them as they are a sign of God's grace in our lives. Really a little taste of heaven and what it's going to be like. They're great. We cannot seek to live in them forever. And we so often chase after these mountaintop moments. We dedicate our lives to finding that moment again. That perfect Christmas morning, like I said. Maybe it's that amazing Sunday morning worship time. 
for that sermon where the Spirit just spoke in profound ways. Whatever it is, we chase, we chase, we chase, and everything it kind of starts to feel empty afterwards. Because we can never really get back to that mountaintop experience, that moment in our mind where everything was perfect. It's a condition of the human heart, right? We're, we're discontented people a lot of the time. But instead of chasing those moments, instead of thinking we can only find happiness or contentment or even Jesus in those mountaintop moments, we have to change our eyes from them to Jesus himself and his mission, not the moment. It is in him we find the only place where satisfaction can be found. Everything we're looking for is actually available in him right now. Not in those moments. So recognize that the mountaintop experiences are a gift. But we have access to Jesus all the time. If you find your life defined by chasing that next high, that next moment, you need to stop. Jesus wants to meet you right where you are. He comes to us on top of the mountain, but also in the darkest valley. He was with the disciples right before this, when he's predicting his death and calling them all to die. That is a deep, dark valley, and Jesus is there. And then he brings us to these amazing mountaintop experiences. But he knows us better than you can imagine, and he wants to be with you on every step of the journey, not just the highs, but also the lows. That's the good news. It's a message that we need to hear and remember. Don't just live your life looking forward to that next big thing. Live it right now. Jesus wants to speak to you right now. Let's go back to that listen to him section again. You know, at the end of verse 5, God says, This is my son. Love him. Listen to him. Tells us a lot about Jesus, his kingliness. You know, that he has it all figured out. But it tells us about ourselves. Here's a quote that kind of reinforces this point that I came across this week. It said, There must be no hesitancy or delay in following Jesus with all one's heart and soul. For unreserved commitment to Jesus Messiah is required from those who have witnessed his glory. We are called to lay down our lives and follow Jesus. We've experienced his glory in this way. I won't rehash Chris's sermon from last week, but I highly encourage you to go check it out to really dive deep into what it means to lay down one's life. But these moments, these mountaintop moments, where we experience the fullness of Jesus, actually compel us to follow him with our whole hearts. But we regularly think we know better. Hence the command to listen. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. This tells us that that we are finicky, flaky, forgetful people. And we think we understand what's going on but our ignorance regularly takes us down the wrong path. We think we're following Jesus, but our pride and our ignorance leads to death. We'll see this in the disciples later on, but let's continue reading here. Uh, Let's go down to verse 9 and 10. So they're terrified. Jesus says, get up. See no one except Jesus. And then in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked them, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Seems like a bit of a change to the story here, right? They're moving on. 
coming down from the mountain. Jesus wants them to keep it to themselves. Time's not quite right for this full proclamation of his godhood to be made known to a wider thing. Um, he has a plan. He knows what's going on. And then they ask this question. Why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? You saw Elijah on the mountain. He came first, right? That's <laughs> not quite what's going on. Uh, but in the Old Testament, there's this prophecy that Elijah would come before the promised Savior. He would make a way. He'd start restoring things and make things known. So in this question, the disciples are actually doubting Jesus. Like, how could you be the Messiah? How could you be the Savior uh, if Elijah hasn't come? Uh, and that doubt is because they can't see the whole picture. The disciples don't always get it. They're kind of ridiculed a lot in the Bible, right? Uh, they're kind of buffoons at times, it looks like. Uh, but we should have some compassion for them because we're a bunch of buffoons too. Because we don't get it. We don't know what's going on. Yeah, we walk around thinking we have it all figured out. And it's a dangerous place to be. I can speak from experience. Pride is super dangerous. It blinds us. It causes us not to listen to God. It causes us not to listen to God's people, the Spirit. It leaves us in our ignorance, and it causes pain and hurt in ourselves and others. What we see in the disciples here needs to cause us to stop and remind ourselves, be humble, be teachable. Don't pretend that you know everything that's going on. Be open to hearing from Jesus and his correction. Uh, thankfully, Jesus quickly relieves the disciples of their ignorance uh, as we continue reading on in uh, verses 11 and 13. Let's, let's pick back up in there. Coming to the end here. So they asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Jesus teaches, it's revealed, oh, I get it. Elijah himself is not actually going to like come back and live again. But John the Baptist is the Elijah. He prepared the way for Jesus in the wilderness. He was, you know, he went through suffering, but he, he made the path straight so that Jesus' ministry and mission could be worked out. So it starts to click. Jesus teaches, they listen to him, uh, and it all comes together. They understand what's going on. They're getting the whole picture. And the call to us is to keep that humble, teachable posture. To step back and see how Jesus fits into God's plan and how that defines our role in it. Disciples don't need to figure out all the pieces. They need to follow Jesus and his ministry and mission. They need to worry about who Elijah was. It shouldn't be a barrier for them. They have Jesus right there. He's telling them what to do. And just like the disciples, we tend to be short-sighted. And the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop is a call for us to wake up and take in the whole picture of who Jesus is and what he is about. He is God with skin on, coming to fix a dying and broken world. He is brilliant and glorious. He is the servant king who gave up the privileges of heaven to come to earth and die a horrible death. All so that people, the people and creation he loves, could be made right again did it for us, for his creation, this thing he cherishes. So the point of this transfiguration story 
Psalms to give us a glimpse of that glory, a glimpse of that God, so we can hold on to it, remember it, so that it can compel us to continue to follow Jesus and his work and his mission. We shouldn't just camp out there and try and get as, you know, we're going to make a tent and make a fair and charge admission so we can all experience God's glory. It's not what we're going after here, right? This moment, these mountaintop moments compel us, inspire us, fuel us outwards on mission because we're so overawed by who God is and what he has in store for us that we can't help but take it all over the world. So what does this mean for us? We need to pursue Jesus with our whole hearts. We need to listen to him. We need to pursue Jesus' church, his people, in this time of distance. If you're feeling on the outside, lean in. Put your hand up. Ask to be connected. Get together with your community. Whatever it takes. Don't expect everybody to come and pursue you. The church will do that, but we are failures of people, and we screw it up, and we miss people. Put your hand up, lean in, pursue Jesus' church, love it, strengthen it. And we need to proclaim the good news of Jesus for our friends and our neighbors as the only path to life. This is an amazing picture of this glorious, humble king came down from heaven to earth. That's good news. Should want to share that with others. In this long and drawn-out season of covid and social distancing, we can't just put Jesus on hold. You know, that was kind of the temptation in my heart. We're just going to like hunker down four months of this stupid thing, put all community group, DNA, church stuff, everything we'll just put on hold. We'll just pick it back up. It's not the case. I'm preaching to you on a dock, not in a movie theater. This isn't going away anytime soon. We can't put Jesus on hold in this season. If anything, We need to be overawed by his glory and allow that to inspire us to worship and praise and listen and be on mission for him over and over and over again. As we conclude, I want to read this quote I came across from D.A. Carson. It says, The contrast between what Jesus had just predicted would be his fate, death on the cross, And this glorious sight would one day prompt Jesus' disciples to marvel at the self-humiliation that brought him to the cross and to glimpse a little of the height of which he had been raised by his vindication, resurrection, and ascension. We need to marvel at what Jesus gave up and what he went through to save us. And the call is to humble ourselves so that our short-sightedness does not get in the way of experiencing Jesus' glory participating in his mission. As you continue to be the church in quarantine, do not lose sight of this. We are still his people. We are still on mission to spread the good news about this amazing servant king whom we follow. Let's pray together. Hmm. Yeah, Jesus, thank you for this amazing picture of your fullness, your goodness, of your compassion, of just who you are that we get in this transfiguration story. And Spirit, I pray that the work you've been doing in my heart, that you'll continue to do in others' hearts as as your word goes forth uh, and produces fruit in your church and your people. Um, May we be humble, may we be teachable. 
so that we can glory in you and go forth and do your work. Amen.